This episode is brought to you by Auth0. That's Auth0.com. In this episode, we get to speak with the author of Designing for Emotion, the second edition, Aaron Walter. Welcome, I'm Frederick Philip Von Weiss. Thank you so much for consuming The Thunder Nerds, a conversation with the people behind the technology that love what they do and do tech good. And uh, before we get going, I'd like to first thank our sponsor for the show. We have an exclusive sponsor, the good people at Auth0. They make it easy for developers to build a custom, secure, and standard-based unified login by providing authentication and authorization as a service. So if you could please check them out at authzero.com. Thanks, Authzero. And with that being said, without any further ado, let's go ahead and welcome our amazing guest today. I'm so honored and I feel lucky to have you on the show, sir. We have, <clears throat> let me read all these points correctly, Vice President of Design Education at Envision App Inc., co-host of the Design Better podcast, speaker, and author of Designing for Emotion. We'll talk about the second edition. Aaron Walter, welcome yeah. to the show, sir. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back, Aaron. Thank you so much. So how have you been? I know you have um, gone through a lot of things with not only our current environment, our current political situation, uh, that's just nuts, but also writing the book. So um, how, yeah. how's it going for you uh, personally? You know, uh, plugging along like uh, most folks, um, the world is upside down and there are lots of lessons to be learned from this experience. Um, uh, and, and there are silver linings in all of this as well. Uh, which we could talk about, but um, I'm doing well. I'm feeling good. I'm, I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, I'm happy to hear it then. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, hopefully we'll have some silver linings and uh, a lot of them will shine in November. <laughs> I, we, we don't like to get too political, but I, I think um, some of these things go beyond politics and just basic human rights. Um, and it's, uh, we, we're, we're definitely in, um, a good spot to initiate change and welcome it. And I'm, I'm really hoping that's what we see in America. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. The pandemic is really an amplifier of so many things. Um, and it's creating space in our life, whether we want it or not, to pay attention to a lot of what's going on. Sometimes uh, it's just paying attention to what's going on um, in nature and noticing birds nesting and uh animals stopping by your yard um but it's also means like paying attention to um things in in our country and in society that um need need some change need some rethinking yeah i think a lot of people one of my guests that i had on the show a few weeks ago todd libby he was talking about how this really made him uh, and I, the black lives movement specifically really made him rethink his his uh, quote unquote whiteness is, is, is white privilege and all the things yeah. that go along with that and how to, uh, how to get out of that mindset and really think about the world around him and not only our, ourselves, but other people. And it's, um, you know, it, it could be quite challenging for some people to step out of their ego and, and see the rest of the world. Uh, but I, I think we're yeah. on the right track here. Yeah, I, you know, it's as I said, I, I I think of this pandemic as an amplifier, and one thing that it amplifies is the disparities um, between us, economic disparities, um, you know, privilege or, or racial disparities in society, um, and it's an opportunity. I, I see this in our world, in our field, as designers, as people who make things, to ask the, that question: Who are we? leaving out who's not included in what we're doing um 
And, you know, designers have a lot of power in what we're doing. We're making products, we're making service, we're services, we're making websites that a lot of people use. And by asking that question that maybe we weren't paying close attention to, who are we leaving out? Uh, we can start to rethink some of our philosophies, recognize some of the flaws, shortcomings that we have, and make a change. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of it comes from the fundamentals of our, our teams within certain organizations. Like if, mm-hmm. if you have a, a team and everybody on your team is, uh, is a male or everybody in the team looks like you, whatever that may be. Same, same economic background, racial yeah, ex- profile. Yeah, yeah, same culture, same religion, yeah. or lack thereof. You're, you're not going to be able to uh, have a really rounded understanding of humanity. I, and I think that's why a lot of people uh, kind of think about going to these uh, big places, these, these meccas of culture, such as New York, New York City, where you could really experience humanity yeah. to its fullest and see the best of people, really be able to, to take that experience in through osmosis on, on, on the basic level. And then on a person-to-person level, you really get to have a, a, a great understanding of the rich culture of this world and appreciate it and uh, use it to empower yourself. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that I love about cities is just um, multiple perspectives, um, multiculturalism. And I, I got to say, though, there's like this flip side, too, that um, when we're in cities, we often forget about like, what about people in rural areas? And what about their experience? Or what about people who, uh, you know, didn't grow up with privilege? Um, and I think that's, a, that's another one of the flaws that I, w- I would encourage listeners, watchers uh, tonight to think about is just, again, who are we leaving out? Because I think that regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum, um, there's this general feeling of being unseen. You, you, don't, you don't understand where I'm coming from. Um, I, am, I am such a lover of the web and its possibilities. And the reason why I got into this space uh, two plus decades ago was because I felt like, you know, we could make something really powerful and we could make great things that change humanity and bring people together. But also recognize that what we're creating creates these niches, these, these corners where we can hide and have kind of an echo chamber of our own perspectives reflected back. That's problematic, right? That's problematic that uh, we're not actually getting the full view of a problem. Um, and that's a design problem, right? That good design is able to look at problems from multiple perspectives, hold different viewpoints in our minds simultaneously, challenge those, debate those, and find multiple solutions. Uh, was just watching John Maeda's uh, CX report uh, yesterday. Um, he's on our podcast, the Design Better podcast. And um, in there, there's a quote, something to the effect of like, if you don't see multiple solutions to a problem, you don't actually understand the problem. And I truly believe that, you know, that as designers, uh, as, as people who kind of think about how things are made and think about what's possible, and you know, we, we, we approach our work with good intention. Um, we, need to, we need to think about lots of different solutions to our problems. And multiple solutions means multiple perspectives. So any way that we can get that, if that's visiting cities, if that's visiting rural locations, if that's meeting people who are unlike us, that's all food for making us better at what we do. Yeah, and just to cite the point that you you made about rural situations, um, you know, we might be, uh, we might, some of us might have the luxury of living in a big city like New York and getting to have that experience, but everywhere is a bubble. Uh, Everywhere is, is that's, that's where you're at. And it's, it's different from some other place, like things Mm -hmm. like bandwidth, for example, like yeah. you decided, like uh, rural rural locations, like uh, are are we testing things on G three, for example, rather than our super fast G five and wherever we are in in Manhattan? So there there's there's so many things of not just people, emotions, 
and then circumstances uh, circumstances exactly yeah. yeah yeah i'm with you um there's a lot of lot of dimensions that that we need to consider and that's why design is what design is it's not uh taking photoshop and making something look pretty it's 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 really solving problems it's a, it's, it's it's about business solving business problems but it's about human problems uh, at the center of it um yeah. So why don't we why don't we start to talk about because a lot of these points are in your book. So this mm -hmm. is the second edition of designing for emotions. Now, maybe this is um, uh, ironic because you you had some uh, uh, emotions that provided you an extreme amount of stress. From my understanding, uh, you 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 wrote this book, and mm -hmm. I, I think one of the things that you cited before, and I remember you saying that writing a book is uh, he it's hell to write, but heaven to publish. And you got so yeah. stressed out that you uh, I read on your on your website <laughs> and blog right. that you got you got shingles from writing I this book. I mean. Yeah. First off, is doing anything yeah. worth getting shingles? <laughs> yeah. And to, to tell us about that. Obviously, I'm just joking around, but yeah. Well, um, writing a book is difficult, and yeah. writing a book when the process starts to bleed into a pandemic, that's uh, pretty hard. You know, when your kids are in school. Oh, wait, they're not in school. Actually, uh, they're sitting behind me trying to do online learning while I'm at work, and in the evening, I'll be writing a book. Uh, so any, anyone who's not aware of what shingles is, it's basically like if at some point in your life, you can track chicken pox and then you get over it. Well, that virus hides in your spinal column. And at any point in your life, when you get super stressed out, it can express itself. And when it does, the way it expresses itself is by attacking your nervous system where you feel. Um, so it's, it's not a fun experience. Um, but, uh, you know, I got it and luckily I got over it very quickly, but, um, the writing process is, is difficult, uh, but it's super rewarding, you know, because, um, I feel like there's not too many situations in our lives for most of us, many of us, there are, you know, number of people who do get to do this, um, think deeply on a topic and, uh, not just think deeply from your perspective, but also to have editors who kind of push you to look at it from different angles. And I had some great editors who helped. Um, Sally Kerrigan, who's my editor on uh, the second edition. Um, so uh, it, it, it was a difficult process. I'm excited that the second edition is out. It's been almost 10 years since the first edition came out. And um, let's be honest, you know, 2011 to 2020, the world is a fundamentally different place. It's a very yes. different place. And so when I started this uh, second edition project, the intention was, let's just update it. Let's just um, revisit the examples to catch it up. And then as I got into it, uh, I realized like, gosh, the, um, there are a number of philosophies that remain true, but there's so much that's changed. Um, that first edition was really about um, helping the design community and our, our digital design space think beyond creating things that were just functional, reliable, and usable, like just utilitarian. Let's, let's learn from information or from uh, industrial design and from architecture uh, and many other design dis disciplines that came before us. Let's create things that are like uh, pleasurable to use and exciting and like engage us on an emotional level. Um, at that time in 2011, this, this phrase designed for delight was, uh, oh, kind yeah. of the mantra we, we heard on in, in so many conferences and so many companies and, and, uh, uh, you know, what I realized as I was writing the second edition was that that is just what falls woefully short. Um, 2011, I still had the optimism that the web was this, um, revolution this thing that brought us together and today i see it as a thing that is also tearing us apart it's really it's not helping us see one another's humanity it's not helping us connect the way that we intended it to uh so we have unintended consequences and it's getting it's getting rough it's getting really ugly and um uh 
I think it, it can lead to big problems if we don't think about this uh, further. So this, this second edition is really about challenging design uh, designers in the design community to think beyond just design for delight, but what about mistrust? What about fear? What about stress? What about anger? What about this full range of emotions that are, you know, they're on the surface right now in our lives in a global pandemic and social upheaval, uh, election year in the United States? We feel all this stuff so acutely. How might we use design to think about that circumstance? Yeah, um, you you talked about one example in your well, one example I'd like to cite in your book. It was specifically in this realm was uh, what was it, TurboTax, where um, you were talking about you know obviously you know designing for 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 uh, emotions uh, where someone went for the first time to fill out their taxes and uh, or or rather the first time they went to fill out their taxes without their. Uh, their partner, their spouse, what have you, yeah. is, is, has left them, and they they check a box and they provide a, a message to communicate. You know, we're, we're sorry for your loss, etc. Mm -hmm. Like having some kind of um, human emotional element to say, you know, we get it, we're, and and we're going to be here for you, and we're going to get this done right, and we're going to try to make this process as easy as possible for you. Yeah, I, this example I think is really interesting and it leads to kind of a, a bigger philosophy about ownable moments, these moments in the customer journey, whether they're a peak moment where things are really great and customers feel empowered and good, or a valley moment where they feel terrible. Maybe the product is frustrating, um, or maybe there's this deep emotional moment that is difficult to process and, and deal with, as is the case in, the, in TurboTax. So if you lost your spouse, you're filing your, your taxes for the first time without your spouse, you have to let the federal government know that because your tax circumstances are different now. You might not have two incomes, uh, tax credits are different, et cetera. Critical piece of data. It's data, but it's, it's humanity. It's like, um, it's, uh, how would that feel to experience that? Maybe you lost your partner and you've had months to grieve and process that. And going through this tax filing process just reopens that Pandora's box of emotion, oh God, yeah. which, which happens every year. You know, statistically, I don't know how many Americans die annually, but uh, statistically, there are a lot of people who file their taxes and they have this experience. And what TurboTax did is not, uh, you know, it's not a... a it's not a real stroke of genius from a design perspective, but it is a stroke of generosity uh, of yeah. just recognizing the humanity of the moment that you're experiencing a loss. This is probably really difficult for you to acknowledge. Filing your taxes is stressful enough, but adding on top of that, the sadness of lose, losing a spouse, um, acknowledge that, recognize that this is how people feel. Um, you know, treat, treat the people on the other side of the, your products and your website like you would if you were talking with them in person. Um, I, that's one thing that I, that I think we all can acknowledge is that the web, the anonymity of the web brings out um, our, our uh, um, less desirable traits. We do and say things that we wouldn't do in front of, you know, if we were to meet that person face to face. Um, so I love how TurboTax just considers um, the humanity of the moment and acknowledges that loss and kind of reassures the, 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 the user that they're going to help figure this out for them with the, the taxes. I think uh, another example, uh, and it might be not the best example, but it might be a, a failing example possibly, but it's, it's good to think about because it provides some context and help us think about ways that we can succeed is the, um, we were talking to Eric Myers a few months ago about uh, how Facebook will give yeah. you these uh, memories. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it's, it's memories and I've, I've experienced this too with, with some family, unfortunately as well, where, you know, you get this memory of, Oh, you know, you celebrated so-and-so's birthday and blah, blah, blah. And they're not with us anymore. And that, that's a moment to, uh, that's not a pleasant moment. But yeah. I think it, within this instance, it's a teachable moment that we could talk about to say, you know, 
I don't know. I don't know how that gets fixed, but it's certainly something to think about and incorporate. Yeah, with um, within yeah. design. Eric's book, Designing for Real Life, that he co-authored. Um, I, I highly recommend that book. I think there are a lot of great lessons. Um, his book and and the second edition. I think that they they are they feel connected to me. Uh, so they're a good good pair to read together. But. Um, yeah, so in, in the second edition of this book, um, in the new chapter where I uh, write about designing for empathy and inclusion, um, I point to two designers uh, who I admire greatly, um, Boywin Gao and Jahan Manton, um, who've put together this amazing framework called uh, Designing for Diversity, and it's a series of questions that we can ask ourselves and our teams to help us um, think about different circumstances. And one of those questions is, uh, what's the worst that can happen and on whom? Uh, so the intention is to help us see, we, we bring good intentions to our work as designers. We want to do good work and help people. But sometimes what actually happens on the other side is very different than what we intended. And this is the part that I think we've learned in the past 10 years since that first edition and the second edition of, I want to do something great. I'm going to make this great thing. I'm going to put it out in the world and it's going to be awesome. Let's move fast and break things and it all just, it'll all, all be just fine. Well, it's not just fine, actually. Our, our intentions, if we don't connect our intentions to the impact, who the communities that this actually impacts, the individuals who this actually impacts, if we don't follow up on that, um, we can end up creating chaos. You know, uh, it's it's almost as if we're playing with nuclear power and not thinking about, uh, you know, the radiation effects that the, the fallout uh, of what can happen with the things that we make. Um, and we've seen that so many times. Right now, as we're recording um, this week, Facebook is going back and forth and trying to mitigate this uh, boycott that advertisers have against them. Um, you know, related to hate speech, hate, hate speech policies on their platform, and they intend to have free speech. But it turns out that it, you know, there are consequences to what people say. And if you create a platform where people can say anything without having consequence, you're actually enabling really negative circumstances. Um, so in a nutshell, uh, that gap, um, if there's a theme of 2020, it is good intentions and, and negative outcomes, we need to be smarter about the gap between those. Yeah, it makes me think about the uh, example that you have in the book with uh, Airbnb, how they were going to uh, post everybody's names, like trying to make it more human, more relatable. You could see someone's photo, you could see their name, you could get an idea of um, on both both sides of you know, who, who 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 um actually has the 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 home the residence what have you and then host who's and guest yeah yeah host and guest thank you host and guest and then uh, unbeknownst to them uh, we had that issue where uh, and I'm gonna look at the statistic you have here that um, African American names are 16 percent less likely to be accepted uh, relative to identical guests with distinctively white names like mm -hmm. that, like, like you think that, you know, you're going, your intention is to do a good thing by making this more of a human experience. And then um, society, it's, it's almost like every good, no good deed goes unpunished kind of a thing uh, almost. Yeah. I, I know so many great people at Airbnb who are super thoughtful uh, in fact, they, I think they are some of the most thoughtful designers that I know. And nonetheless, they feel, um, you know, they experience this too. And I, I feel like many of us make these mistakes. Uh, but, um, you know, Airbnb is a business that is predicated upon trust. If the host does not trust the guest, the host will not welcome the guest into their home. And if the, that doesn't happen, then Airbnb doesn't make money. It's not a sustainable business. Um, 
magic doesn't happen. People don't connect. And so they build systems. They're very thoughtful about mapping trust about their uh, across their customer journey. Um, all the different teams that are uh, positioned throughout that customer journey working on specific issues, they think about how their specific vertical or domain of the, 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 the product um, could potentially create trust or degrade trust. Um, and so what you described was, you know, when you see faces and names, it is intended, the, the, the design intention there is if we see faces and names, we'll think of that person not as an anonymous person, but as an individual. And I see you and I recognize your humanity. I'm going to welcome you into the, my home and we're off to a good start. But it also played into, um, you know, racial prejudice. And I mean, it, it created fodder for prejudice um, decision-making, which is, uh, you know, a prejudiced person seeing a person of color or seeing a name that, that feels unfamiliar and saying, eh, I, I, don't, I don't know about this. I don't, I don't trust this situation. And that's not good. Um, that's really awful. And there's a hashtag, you know, um, Airbnb while black um, that became a thing. Airbnb has done a ton to try to think about this problem and solve this problem. And I admire greatly Brian Chesky, their CEO and co-founder, how he's been at the forefront. And instead of, you know, there are some companies that sweep stuff like this under the rug. He shines a light on it and says, here's where we got it wrong. Here's what we can do. Um, the people they hire also, um, you know, choosing to build diverse teams to help tackle these problems. I think that's huge and very important. Um, and also they're working on a framework for identifying, uh, you know, discriminatory practices and then um, open sourcing that so other companies could also tap into that and use that in their products. Yeah, it's definitely something to, to own, understand, um, digest, and then mm-hmm. try to... Uh, to solve these problems. It's, it's, these are things that, uh, you know, if we, we put the time in, well, I, I, I have hopes. I'm optimistic uh, with the human race. I I think we'll get there eventually. And I mean, again, with everything that we're seeing around us right now, it's, it's giving me a little bit more hope the way everybody's kind of uh, coming together and and trying to move forward. Um, That's it's, 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 it's beautiful in, in a lot of ways. So this is, speaking, this is the silver lining of, of a pandemic is, is that yeah. it forces us to pay attention. Exactly. And, and like you said, it really puts everything under a, um, bring, it brings a lot of things to light. It really illuminates what's going on. So, mm-hmm. so um, speaking of this, you, you have a new chapter in this book, which is mm-hmm. empathy and inclusion. So mm-hmm. uh, you wrote this book from my understanding about a year ago. Is that right? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, 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 I mean, uh, you started writing a year ago. To, to that's be right. Specific. That's right. Yeah. Took me a year to write it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what was the inspiration for this new chapter? Um, the, the inspiration was, uh, uh I'm trying to, uh, I'm hesitating here cause I'm trying to r- recall how we got there, but, um, I made a first pass at the book. And it didn't include this chapter, but there were examples in it. And my editor was like, actually, you know, I think this is, this is a much bigger conversation and should be um, explored more. And just, just to, for, for transparency here, that conversation between me and my editor was happening like in October of last year. So pandemic had not hit, um, current social upheaval had not, it was not, uh, not on our radar, but um, uh, it, it occurred to me that there's nothing more fundamental to, to designing for emotion than just making people feel welcome, that you, know, yeah. you belong and you are seen and uh, you, know, you can use this product and it aligns to how you see the world. Um, and there's some examples in there. There's a, a really lovely example. Um, from Slack, Diogenes Burrito, who's a designer over there. Um, and uh, an interesting and difficult situation that he went through. Um, they were, Slack was doing a new campaign um, 
that required some design assets to be able to publish on social and various places on their website. It was just about like putting a Slack button, like post to Slack type of thing. Oh yeah, the, the add to Slack, right? Add to Slack, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and Dio, uh, he, he's a person of color and uh, he thought, you know, I've got these stock illustrations here and they're like, the shows white hands. Um, I could make that a brown hand and um, then that would feel a little bit more inclusive. And as a person of color, um, you know, there's so much of, of popular culture, so much uh, in design uh, that is, it defaults to white. Um, just, just also to kind of give listeners a little context. I'm a very, very white man. I am so white that white people give me a hard time about how white I am. But I, uh, I am the father of two Afri- African-American boys. And so in my experience raising two black boys in the United States, I, I notice these, these gaps. Um, like when I play Candyland with my kids and we look at the board and I say to the boys like, hey, look at all the characters on the board. Do you notice that they're all white? Who do you think designed it? And my six-year-old six years old, he said, it's a white guy that designed this board. He knows. So when you're six years old, you're in kindergarten, you, you recognize that experience right away of, I don't see myself in the world. I don't feel that sense of belonging and connection. Um, and that's, that's a heavy thing to carry. Uh, starting at a very young age, all the way into your adulthood, so fast forward, uh, you know, when you're an adult, you're a designer like uh, Dio Brito at Slack, it's a small thing. I'm just going to change the skin color on this illustration. And he said, like, I don't want to make this a thing because he did have to talk to a colleague to get the assets and kind of explain why he wanted the source material, source illustrations. Uh, but he said, you know, it kind of is a thing. It's the right thing to do. And so he changed it and the Slack ad campaign went out with a brown hand holding the add to Slack button. And so many people responded. People of color were just like, yes, I, I feel seen. Like I don't often see my color reflected in the world. And, and you did that and I appreciate it. This is a thing that normally it would be kind of like a campaign that pops up and it fades into the distance. Yet we're still talking about it. Why are we talking about it? Because the default, it's, it's just so rare to see uh, people of color represented in normal circumstances. Um, so uh, I love that he shared that experience. And I also love that uh, how it was responded to within the design community and just more broadly, lots of people noticed that. And it, it brings us back to the earlier part of our conversation. Who are we not including? That feels like a really important part of the idea of designing for emotion, of designing to make people feel connected, make, make people feel included and seen. That seems fundamental to that philosophy of designing for emotion. How do we, and if having teams that are more di- diversified, I, I imagine would greatly help this, this, this point out by, by so much, how, how, how are we not having teams with more diversification and h- how do we do that? How do we solve this problem? Yeah. How, do we, how do we start that conversation and, and say, hey, everyone, let's, let's look around, let's recognize uh, who we are as a team and maybe challenge that identity? Yeah, um, I think it, it, there are a number of ways to approach this on an individual level, on a team level, and on a company policy level. Um, many companies have policies uh, where we refer people uh, to try to find talent, uh, to, to fill, fill uh, spaces on your team. And what happens with a policy like that, there's a, a financial incentive. You might get $1,000, $2,000 for connecting someone that you know in your network to the company. And if that company starts with uh, a certain group of people, let's say it's a bunch of white people, and you've got that policy where there's a financial incentive that people get paid more for recommending people in their 
network, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy that you will build a company of predominant, that is a homogenous group of people. Um, and so you don't build diversity. So that's a damaging policy that we're not thinking about carefully. It seems like, oh, low-hanging fruit will get more people if we just go to whoever you know is, is the best person. Um, but it's, it's, it's problematic. Also, the philosophies or the ideas about where we find top talent, let's only look at the top schools in our nation. Let's only look from Ivy Leagues. Let's only look from the top logos, the top brands. Um, so if lots of brands are only going to the top universities that are prohibitively expensive, um, insanely expensive, let's just call it like it is at this point, yeah. college is insanely expensive, even at state schools, let alone an Ivy league school. Um, and those schools also have policies that might have biases built right in. What you have is a, a fundamental structure in the system where uh, we don't. We get almost no uh, CEOs in the Fortune 100 or Fortune 500 who are people of color. Uh, almost none. They're almost entirely white. Uh, I don't remember what the percentage is. I think there's. Uh, don't quote me on this. Uh, we could Google it later. Put it in the show notes. But I think it's like four people of color uh, who are CEOs in the Fortune 500. Wow. That's problematic. Um, is it because this is a group of people who are not qualified? No, it's because there are fundamental flaws in the system. And the social upheaval that we see right now are people uh, protesting the, the structural flaws in the system. They, you know, we want to see change in the system um, because it's been that we, we've, we've had a system of inequity for far too long. So we can change it in our teams. We can look from different, uh, look to different places to find top talent, to build more diverse teams. And we can also challenge ourselves to be more open to hiring people who are not just like us. There's this phrase of like, let's hire for culture fit. Um, that's problematic too, because then you end up getting homogenous groups of people. And then from an individual's uh, perspective. So if you are a person who... You want to just kind of up your game and you want to be a better designer, a better developer, just understand the world more, understand people, humanity. Uh, go out of your way to find situations where you are the only. Experience that situation where you are the only. I am a, a white male born in the United States uh, in the 20th century. In, in, the, in the course of human history, that's about the top of privilege that you can get. It, it, it doesn't really get any met better to date. Um, so I have a, a narrow set of experiences. And, um, you know, there are things like when I take my kids to the barber shop, um, I am the only. And it feels uncomfortable. And I'm conscious of the uncomfortableness. But I am present. And I am participating. And I am open. I, I, I want to I be part of this experience. Going to uh, an entirely black church and experiencing that and feeling connected um, or intentionally building a social circle of, of friends who don't look like me, don't come from the same background. Because for me, it's like my wife and I know that if we don't do that, our kids are going to feel like uh, they didn't have a connection. They, they feel kind of they feel that burden, uh, you know, in, in adulthood. If they don't feel it right now, it, it's a thing that builds. So um, put yourself in situations where you are a little, you're fish out of water. This is different. I'm not used to this. When we're not in a pandemic, travel is a good way to do that as well. Um, but any way that you can expose yourself to that, even just reading great books, like, you know, go read a ta Coates book, um, you know, James Baldwin, like, um, expose yourself to different perspectives. That's going to help you. It's going to help you be a better person, better designer, uh, feel more connected to the world. Yeah, it's just advantageous for you uh, as a person in so many different levels to take in other uh, cultures, other other people, other ways of thinking. Uh, to just, if not anything else to even just grow your own um, understanding of the world and your position within it. 
Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we jump into um, uh, another chapter that I, I wanted to ask you about, which is chapter six, which was originally titled Forgiveness. And you added trust, fear, and forgiveness. Can, yeah. can I ask you why the, uh, the appending that to the beginning there? Yeah, the, um, I, I, there's just so many situations right now where trust in products uh, there's a lot of skepticism in the world and with the web. Like, uh, you know, you're filling out a form and they're asking for a lot of information. You're like, why do you need this information so I could get like an insurance quote or set up a bank account, whatever it is? Um, why do we feel mistrustful? Well, because we see we we see our information being misused. Um, we live in a world where you know, we're told, uh, don't, don't count on any of your, con your, your, your data being private because it's all, uh, you know, all systems are porous and there are so many hackers that are releasing these things. Um, we also see just like blatant privacy breach um, in so many places, our emails being abused. It's really like, what circumstances do we not have some sort of trade-off or violation in order to get some uh, something out of our digital experience. It's just um, data is very fluid. So we are mistrustful. And as designers, we need to think about that stuff. Um, I think it's fascinating. There's an example in there about Apple. Uh, Apple is a, you know, interesting company often cited for design things. I think it's really interesting how they are using privacy as a competitive advantage as a differentiator to say, when you buy our products, um, they, these products are encrypted. Our services will not ask you for personal information. Like they, they go out of their way to explain the privacy value proposition of their platform over other competing platforms. Right. Um, and it's a differentiator. And um, now is that the reason why they, are, they have, have won the platform wars like by a long shot? I think they're... 1.5, 1.6 trillion market cap at this point. Um, they, they've won big time in, in um, iPhone and, and iOS and, and so forth. Uh, I think it's, a, it's part of, of it. Um, and then we also see like FinTech companies taking really interesting approaches to building trust and also disincentivizing really bad behavior. Uh, Wealth Simple is an interesting company. I talked to their uh, head of design, Rudy Adler, as research for the book. And uh, really fascinating to me, when you log into their platform, um, you see the stock market, like the, the, the map of your investments. If you don't know what Wealth Simple is, it's a, an automated investing service. So you put money in there on a regular basis. It automatically invests and balances your portfolio for you. So it's a computer managing my retirement fund, which is super crazy. And like, I don't trust it. That's uh, why would I trust this? Um, so there's a lot of stuff that's happening on the front end. And that's a different conversation to get you in the door. But when you get in the door, one of the problems with uh, financial services is that when you're in a bear market, like now, uh, a big recession, what you see is typically like open up your phone, look at the stock app. You just see the crater. Oh my gosh, we're in this crater. It's so deep. Uh, I, you know, I'm losing all this money. I need to just dump all my holdings and get out of the stock market because it's too dangerous. I'm scared. I'm scared. I have a lot of fear. Um, but actually, your fear uh, in that situation will drive the worst behavior. The worst thing you can do in a bear market is sell all your holdings because now you're out of the game. You bought high and you sold low inverse of what, what we need to do if we're going to build wealth. Um, and so what Simple does is they just show you a bigger time scale. Instead of showing you the narrow time, time scale, don't show me what, it, what the, the markets look like through a microscope. Show me what they look like through a telescope where I can see the whole thing and I can see, oh, yeah, it's trending up and to the right. All right, I'm in a little bit of a pothole right here, but it's going to go back up. Um, so it feels less scary, and then that disincentivizes uh, really negative behavior. So those are a couple examples, but um, 
this again feels very central to what we're doing today in 2020 as designers to design great products is we've got to deal with fear. Uh, we've got to create trust because trust has been, there, there are fissures in the, in the trust that we have. Um, and uh, yeah, we've got to think about these things. Yeah, just to decide another example, I think you you wrote about 23B, how people have that trepidation uh, giving away their um, their 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 code, their genetic code, or, or whatever they think, you know, and they say, you know, we, we don't want your blood. It's 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 just a you know little little swab, uh, and it it goes it goes back to I think another thing that you said where it's um, if a decision is um, too hard to make. You'll, you'll usually go with your gut. You'll go with, uh-huh. instead of going with logic, you'll go with emotion. That's right. Yeah, and there's been a lot of interesting studies on this. But basically, um, we like to think of ourselves as humans that we are governed by logic and uh, rationality. But so much of decision-making is built on emotion. Emotion is is a bit of a, a compass for us to navigate life that um, extreme emotion that's positive uh, gets encoded in long-term memory so we can repeat those things and extreme negative emotion also gets encoded in memory long-term memory so we avoid really dangerous or negative situations again yeah i mean emotion is that that tiebreaker that or uh you know kind of uh helps us make a lot of decisions uh, There's studies in the 1800s. There's an interesting uh, case where a man um, had a steel bar um, penetrate his skull and come out the other side and essentially s- sever the two hemispheres of his brain. Jesus. And in doing so, um, it, it disconnected uh, his logic and his emotion. And he was unable to, um, he survived, and, which is amazing. He didn't have like some crazy infection that took over his brain. So he survived it, but he was unable to make a decision um, going forward. And that was because he no longer had the tiebreaker, which is emotion that our, our gut, we call it our gut, but just like intuition, this, like all these different things. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell uh, talks about this uh, in, in his books, Thin Slicing, um, where we have these gut reactions, which aren't always right. But in many cases, if you have to make a snap decision, um, they are uh, more right. Um, And so we need those gut decisions to help us decide, is this a good thing for me or a bad thing for me? Um, And as designers, we kind of have to know how the human mind works. We have to understand some fundamentals so we can consider, like if if we're designing, you know, if we're working at Wealth Simple, how might I get someone to sign up? What are the signals that might tip the scales? Okay, I think this feels like a trustworthy organization. I don't totally understand how their algorithm works to make all this automated investing for me, but I'm excited to try it out because there's this cool value proposition and it's done really well, high production value, and therefore the engineering behind it must be equally as high in production value. Um, So uh emotion is uh we are more captain kirk than we are spock that makes a lot of sense um it, it kind of goes back to um what are the things that you said with uh the the whole thing with the limbic system about how you build um memories in the limbic system via it, it, it's about emotion where you have things that you know you touch a stove the stove was hot that's a long-term memory, that, that emotional connection that helps uh, identify things. And we can and, and do a lot of times with uh, these products, within marketing, we employ those kind of um, patterns to help us uh, communicate value or, or sometimes they're used in, uh, in, in uh, more negative patterns, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's amazing how our memories work. Um, that you know that close connection between long term memory and emotion. Um, it's not an accident. It's it's uh, evolutionary. It's a preservation mechanism. 
You know, one of the other points I wanted to ask you about with with the chapters here is, and I, I like comparing them. I got them side by side. Oh, nice. um, <laughs> is uh, you had uh, chapter seven was risk and reward, and now it's the business of emotional design. Yeah. Uh, why why the change? Why why business? I I wanted to give readers. Um, uh, the tools and the stories that they need to talk to colleagues or skeptics about the idea of designing for emotion. Um, it's, it's baffling to me that human beings don't recognize that there's emotion present in every moment of our lives and, and, and something so fundamental, maybe we want to just give some, some careful consideration to that in our work. But, um, with that first edition, the questions that, that I heard the most were like, how do I convince my boss that this is a worthwhile endeavor? Um, and so in that chapter, there are a couple things that talk about, you know, like our process and how our process is so often flawed. Um, we over, well, uh, it's important for us to get to market quickly, to build products quickly so we can test out with customers and learn. But in doing that, we make some mistakes. We make some big trade-offs. Sometimes, uh, I'd say most of the time unconsciously that we make uh, really negative trade-offs that um, an MVP, uh, minimum viable product, is what we make to try to take to market. Like We can't create everything. We only have so many people, so many dollars, and so much time to be able to produce this thing. So let's try to make a thing that's as good as we can and get to market quickly. Problem is what we do is we end up making something that's just functional and it's a little bit reliable, but we don't really think about like, is it super usable as well? And is it like, is this a thing that people want? Like, do they enjoy using it? Does it make them feel good? Does it kind of meet their emotional needs? Um, and so if we don't do that, there's uh, there's this principle called the primacy effect. It's, you know, first impressions. Um, when you try a product for the first time and it's not good, you are very unlikely to return back to that thing unless some like massive change happened, new brand, like huge marketing campaign, you might come back. But that first impression, it's either it, it connects or it doesn't. Um, and uh, I wanted people to see that. And so instead of thinking of MVPs as like the base of the pyramid, that hierarchy of needs, it's in the book, um, that it's a slice from top to bottom, that it's, it is functional, it is reliable, it is usable, and it is emotionally relevant or engaging. Um, it's some piece of all of that. It's narrow in its scope, so we can still move quickly, um, but it, it considers all of those pieces together. Um, also in that chapter are stories of just like, you know, the, here, here are companies who've won, uh, done something really big through emotional design. So if people have some of these tools, they can um, start to build the vocabulary and um, spark conversation within their, their companies. I love it. How, how do we uh, bring en enlightened stakeholders to, to, to convince them to talk about not just having the, the, the functional slice for MVP, but really having that vertical slice where we have a, a little bit of all those things. And that, that's really the MVP. How, how do we talk to stakeholders, that, stakeholders or, or, or a board of directors that are more concerned with getting it out? We'll talk about that later. Let's just mm -hmm. see if, if there's a need in the market for this. So I, I think there's a couple things. First, um, we could just simply not have that conversation and just do our job as experts in design. Um, that's one thing we could do and it doesn't have to be over the top, you know, emotional design does not have to be pervasive and Hey, I'm asking for an extra six months in this project, uh, or product. Um, you know, in, in earlier in the book, I talk about ownable moments and just like designing moments. We, we can map the customer journey. We can see the peaks and valleys and we can design for those moments and make those engaging that TurboTax example that we talked about earlier, earlier. Do you think that that in any way, shape, or form prevented them from shipping on time? No, it does not prevent that. It's about recognizing the emotional context of the moment, understanding your customers, talking to customers, which again can be done uh, without a huge time investment, um, and, and making that happen. So that's, 
that's approach number one. Approach number two is, um, you know, having those stories, those examples. In the book, I talk about Slack versus HipChat and how Slack, this new startup, came in and defeated Atlassian. Atlassian is a huge company, very successful. They make great products. Um, and they owned the chat market with HipChat. And uh, Slack just completely upended them in a yeah. spectacular way. So much so that Atlassian said, okay, let's pull the plug on HipChat. They tried to iterate, didn't work out, pulled the plug, built a new product, and finally said like, all right, we give up. Um, we're actually just going to partner with Slack. And, uh, and they did. So uh, examples like that, there are also examples about venture capitalists uh, placing big bets on companies that are thinking about emotional design. Um, so having some of that stuff in your back pocket is also good. Uh, even like Sam Altman, who runs Y Combinator, uh, I wouldn't call he he's an engineer. He's like a business guy, and uh, you know he said it's better to have a product that a few people love than many people like. That's a great philosophy. Let's make a product that people really love. Why? Because it's sticky. They will come back. They won't churn. They will continue to use. They will pay for it. And not only will they pay for it, they will tell other people about it. So by framing that last chapter, instead of about like this squishy qualitative stuff, let's talk numbers. Let's talk about quantitative things. Let's frame this so we can talk about emotional design in a different context and um, be convincing with our partners. Yeah, if people love the product, they, they'll just advocate for you because it's, it's, it's connected to them. It's a, it's a piece of them. We're, we're, we're getting really, really short on time. I just, I, I really yeah. want to make sure that we also talk about just briefly, if, if we can, about the book club. I, I love this idea that, yeah. you know, not only can you, you know, a, as a team, you could purchase the book at a, at a nice discount, but you'll actually uh, connect with the team and have a, have a conversation. Do, would you mind just briefly talking about that a little bit? Yeah, this is um, a really fun, uh, fun thing that I'm doing with this, uh, this book is that we're all socially distanced. Uh, we're not in an office together. We can't go to conferences. Uh, we're doing some online conferences and learning, but uh, you know, there's some uh, things that we can do. And so the design, uh, Designing for Emotion book club is an opportunity for if you're at a, a company uh, you know, you've got a team and you want to read the book together. So you can have a conversation or maybe you're, um, you know, teaching a, a class and you've got a big group of people and you want to read that together um, and talk about the ideas in it. Um, and then I can share a discussion guide to help spark some of that discussion if needed. Um, and then I come talk to the group and we can get together and, um, and chat for an hour. And uh, it's a great way for us to learn together separately right now as we're, we're all kind of sheltering in place around the world. Um, so it's been really fun. Yeah, I love that idea. What a great concept. I'm sure you're going to get a, a ton of interesting uh, back and forth from that where, you know, the, the audience will obviously learn from you, but you'll, you'll be able to get a lot of learning from them as well. That's going to be a very yeah. uh, beneficial mutual process. So we're right about at the end of the at end of the show, not a time. So uh, last two things I'd like to ask our guests are uh, how, and in, in, in your case, how, where do people go to find the book? If they go to, um, uh, I'm going to say a bookapart.com slash product slash design hyphen for hyphen emotion. Um, do you have a short URL or any, any other locations you want people to go yeah. to? Well, if obviously you just have go, links to all this in the, in the show notes as well. Yeah. If you just go to a bookapart.com, you'll find it. Um, it uh, has been on the homepage for some time, so uh, you should still be able to find it. Um, that's a bookapart.com. And uh, if you visit my site, aaronwalter.com, that's two A's and two R's because my dad misspelled my name at the hospital. So my name is forever misspelled. Uh, you can find Unique. out more about... Uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, you can find more about the book more about book club um, and uh, kind of additional content that's adjacent to the book. Yeah, and again, we'll have links to all this in the show notes. And the last thing I'd like to ask our guest, Aaron, if, if you have any parting words, any, any words of, of wisdom, anything you'd like to uh, bestow upon the audience at the end here. Ooh, heavy question. 
Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I'll leave you with this. Uh, I've said it multiple times in the interview already, but let's think carefully about the gap between our good intentions and the impact that we have on the world. And let's design for, for that gap. Love it. Excellent. Very well said. Well, Aaron, honestly, thank you so, so much for sharing your time with us. I'm very grateful that you accepted our invitation and, and shared your time with us. Super appreciate it. It's great to see you, Frederick. Yeah, it's great to see you. And thank you, everybody. Happy 4th of July. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and take care. And as always, we'll see you next time. Thanks all. for consuming the thunder nerds we honestly and sincerely appreciate you watching and or listening to the show please subscribe on youtube and itunes write us review a few stars our way and above all else please remember to send your favorite book suggestions to brian hinton i, I like romance novels they have happy endings oh man i am rude i am i am rude <laughs> oh, I guess no one's walking. That's shocking. <laughs> exactly. I love rhetoric. I love rhetoric. I love rhetoric. I love rhetoric. I should have known the Terrator didn't mean us any harm when the Sword of Omens didn't obey me. And anyway, it was just plain stupid to assume it might be bad. Just what the <laughs> fuck am I talking about?